So John chapter 20, uh, we celebrated last week. Blake, Blake kind of has led into this for us already. We celebrated the, the resurrection. And, and honestly, after the teaching last week, one of the thoughts that I had walking away was this is something that we should celebrate every day. This has uh, given us the, the freedom as we trust the resurrection of Christ, giving evidence to the fullness of our salvation. That those who trust in Jesus' payment for our sins and in the truth that he has risen from the dead are now delivered completely and now restored to our Heavenly Father and Creator. So Blake turned our attention last week to a lot of evidence to help us really believe in the resurrection. And one of the pieces of that evidence was the multiple appearances that Jesus made to people after he died and was resurrected. In Scripture, we have 11 detailed occurrences of Jesus appearing to man after he had died and come back to life. And in the passage we will study this morning, we're going to look at John's record of three of those occurrences. And of course, John does this to accomplish his purpose of revealing Jesus as the Son of God so that anyone who would read these words would believe that and find life in his name. So as we walk through these three appearances, we will see three types of people that Jesus pursued to reveal the fullness of his glory. We will see the brokenhearted in Mary Magdalene. We will see the fearful in the ten disciples, minus Thomas. And then we will see the skeptical, which is Thomas. Lastly, we will conclude with that purpose statement that we have so often quoted over the the journey that we've taken in this gospel. And I will give you a charge as we celebrate our fourth birthday from that purpose statement. So first, let's look at the brokenhearted that Jesus pursued. In John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18, John wrote, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. In verse 11, we pick up where we left last week, and we find Mary Magdalene back at the tomb. And she's weeping. Recall from verse 1 that Mary Magdalene had gone out early in the morning after the Sabbath was over. And she goes to the tomb. And she sees the stone rolled away. And 
She runs off to tell the disciples about it, assuming that someone has removed the body. And of course, in that narrative that would follow, we saw last week the, the physical superiority of John, right? As John beat Peter to that tomb. And they find the linens. And John records that when he saw the evidence, he believed. Mary Magdalene, however, has So we find her here, standing outside the tomb, weeping. And at last she looks inside. And in verse 12, we see that instead of finding the tomb empty, she finds two angels sitting where Jesus' body should have been. And the angels ask her, Woman, why are you weeping? The implication of the angel's question was that the time for mourning was over. This is a time of rejoicing. His body is not here because Christ is risen. Death has been defeated. Woman, why are you weeping? Not understanding the implication of that question, Mary answered it literally. I'm weeping because... My Lord's body has been moved, and I don't know where it is. See, not only have the Jews and the Romans conspired to kill Jesus, but now he is not being allowed that proper burial that was so important in the Jewish culture. She's heartbroken. In verse 14, she turns around and she sees Jesus, but does not recognize him. Now, this isn't the only time in Scripture that we have this recorded where Jesus reveals himself. He appears before people who knew him and they don't recognize him at first. There are many theories why this may be the case. One being, as we've seen in John's Gospel, that they didn't expect him to come back to life. They didn't understand that when Jesus said that he would be buried for three days and come back, that that was actually a physical resurrection. They didn't understand that. So maybe they weren't looking for it. Maybe they're still in shock. So they're not able to comprehend the fact that Jesus is standing right before them and recognize them. Practically, maybe he was just too far away from them. Maybe they couldn't see him in detail. One thing is certain, his body in resurrected form does not resemble the body that they last saw. Mutilated. Pierced. Jesus asked her the same question in John chapter 20, verse 15. He says, woman, why are you weeping? And then he adds, whom are you seeking? And I love that, what John records here, supposing him to be the gardener. This is the Son of God, the Creator, who was in the beginning, appearing to this woman, resurrected, and she thinks, Okay, you must be the gardener. And she says, if you've taken his body away, please tell me and I'll take it. And then in verse 16, Jesus calls her by name. He says, Mary. She knew that voice. She knew that, that unique way in which her name was spoken by her Lord. So she replied with a strengthened word for rabbi or teacher, 
Rabboni. And this is reflecting great honor and reverence. I love this beautiful picture here to remind us of a couple things. We're at the end of John's Gospel, and we get, to, we get reminders of what we've already experienced and the, the truths that have already changed and shaped and transformed our lives. We go back to John chapter 4, and just as Jesus revealed himself first as the Messiah to this Samaritan woman at the well, a woman who had placed her identity in the relationships that, in man's approval of her, as she sought satisfaction in multiple marriages. Jesus first reveals himself in resurrected form to this low-profile Mary Magdalene, who's heartbroken. Jesus pursues the unlikeliest of people to use in his plans and purposes. And the longer I live on this earth, the more that truth becomes real to me. That God uses the unlikeliest, the people that the world would write off. Whether it be drug addiction. I heard a powerful testimony yesterday. Somebody who's been delivered. I told Josh I wasn't going to cry. Someone who's been delivered from drug addiction, who is now being used for the kingdom of God to bring in that, that freedom that can be seen, that can be had by people who are trapped by the same thing that she once was trapped by. The world would have written her off. But God pursued her and said, I'm going to use you. This is also a, a perfect reminder of what we saw in John chapter 10. Verses 3 through 4. You remember the good shepherd, right? John 10, verse 3. To him the gatekeeper opens. Listen to this. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Jesus said, Mary. She heard his voice, and she knew him. The good shepherd who laid his life down, pursued Mary, calls her out by name. What a marvelous illustration and reminder for those of us who have also heard our names called out by the good shepherd. That moment when we too figuratively heard our name called out as the sheep. And so we followed because we knew him. Jesus pursues the unlikeliest of people to use in his plans and purposes and calls them out by name because he knows them. They are his. And then we see Mary, having lost him once already, clinging to him, not letting him go. This is not going to happen again. I've got you this time. And in verse 17, Jesus tells her, don't cling too tightly to me. Because I will be ascending to the right hand of my Father. He's already promised that, that he would leave so that he would be able to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. So then Jesus sends her with a message to his brothers. He says, I am ascending 
to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Go tell my brothers that. Give them this message. This is the first time that Jesus referred to the disciples as his brothers. Earlier on in the ministry of Jesus, he referred to them as his children. Towards the end of that ministry, what did we see? What did he call them? You remember? Friends. Now, having paid the penalty that was deserved for sin and defeating the grave in his resurrection, he now can call them brothers. Because of that, they have now been adopted into his family. So go tell my brothers that I will ascend. And it's that same message is, is in that message that he's delivering to them. He's saying, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. We are part of the same family now. We are brothers. So Mary Magdalene runs off in verse 18 and tells the disciples, I've seen Jesus. And she delivers the message that he had given them. Now despite the eyewitness testimony, in Luke's account, in Luke chapter 24, verses 10 through 11, we see that the disciples didn't believe it. Luke 24, 10, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the Mary and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe him. But she believed. Mary believed. Jesus pursued the brokenhearted. Small implication here, but Jesus turns mourning into joy. When Mary went to that tomb that morning, she was brokenhearted. And now you see her, after seeing her Savior, seeing her Lord, believing that He is alive and that He has done for her what she cannot do for herself, she runs to the disciples and she tells them with great joy, no longer mourning. Remember that question, why are you weeping? She's not anymore. Her mourning has been turned into joy. Jesus pursued the the brokenhearted. He also pursued the fearful. In John chapter 20, verse 19, we see the disciples. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, It is withheld. Later that evening, we find the disciples, minus Thomas, as we'll see in verse 24, hiding behind locked doors out of the fear of the Jews. Now that the Jews have killed Jesus and now that the Passover is complete, they're hiding. They're fearful for their lives. Surely the Jews are going to come after them. 
But in an act of power over the physical creation, Jesus reveals himself as resurrected by walking through a wall. Doors are locked. They're hiding. And all of a sudden, Jesus stands right before them. Talk about trick or treat. And so knowing that that would probably cause fear, what does Jesus say? Peace be with you. And then he gives them evidence that he is physically there, that he is not just some ghost or some spirit, but that he is risen in physical form. He says, here are my hands. Look at the holes from the nails. Look at my side where I was pierced. Luke's account also states that he asked them for food. And he ate some broiled fish. What was the disciples' response to Jesus revealing the fullness of his glory? Belief. Disciples were glad when they saw him and they believed. Jesus then offers them that same sentiment, peace be with you, before he gives them a very challenging task. This is the prelude to the the Great Commission. He tells the disciples that they will not be a group of men who will hide their faith behind locked doors. But that just as he was sent into the world by his father, he is now sending them into the world. Now think about the implications of that. The disciples are joyous, right? Jesus is risen. He is here We're finally together again behind the safety of this locked door. Nobody's getting in. And Jesus says, unlock that door. You're going to go out. Just as I was sent into the world, I'm now sending you into the world. Just as I was persecuted, killed, hated, so will you. You can imagine... That might increase the fear, right? Well, I saw what happened to you, Jesus. I'm not sure I have the power to be able to do that. So then Jesus does this seemingly weird thing. He breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, to be clear, Jesus did not impart to the disciples, the Holy Spirit in that moment by breathing on them. We know this because there's internal evidence in Scripture. If you go back to John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus, speaking to the disciples, said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. The Helper, as we've already seen, is the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. This is a symbol of what would occur at the day of Pentecost. If you turn to Acts chapter 2, you'll see this. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Think about the illustration. Jesus 
breathed on them. Like a mighty rushing wind, the Holy Spirit comes and fills the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And if you were to follow, you'll see there were people of all nations in Jerusalem at this time. And all of a sudden, people start hearing their own language. The, the disciples are now communicating the works of God in a language that they can understand. They were filled with the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. Jesus is telling the disciples, you will receive power. Think back to Acts chapter 1, right? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What Jesus is doing in this moment when he says, I am sending you into the world, but know that you're not going on your own power. I want to remind you that I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who will give you that power. So receive the Holy Spirit. This symbol of breathing new New spiritual life is similar to the imagery we see in Genesis chapter 2 at the creation of man when God breathed life into Adam. It's also similar to the picture of God breathing new life into the nation of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 37 in the valley of dry bones. Here, Jesus is using a physical illustration to communicate a spiritual truth that would occur. And then in verse 23... He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, this does not mean that the disciples were given the authority to forgive or not forgive. They don't get to choose whether or not people are forgiven or not. Sin is an offense to God. And only God can forgive sin. But the disciples here are given the authority to speak truth representing what has already been communicated by God. Believe in Christ as the Son of God. Believe in His death and resurrection, and you will find forgiveness. Reject Christ, and you will not find forgiveness. This is the same authority that has been handed down to the church that I can stand here today on the authority of Scripture given to man, by God himself, by his son, to say, if you accept Jesus, if you believe, if you trust that when he went to the cross that he was paying the penalty that you deserved and that he conquered death by raising from the dead, believe that and you'll find forgiveness from your sin. If you reject that, you will not find forgiveness for your sin and you will pay the due penalty that you deserve. It's clear. So here, not only is Jesus telling them, you're going to have the power to go do this, but I'm also giving you the authority. Think about what they were doing before Jesus arrived. They're hiding. They're fearful. But Jesus is taking this fear. He's transforming it into power and authority. He turns that fear into boldness. 
And the implication here for us is we too have been sent into the world. We've been sent to declare the truth of the message of the gospel. This is good news that the world needs to hear. We are sent into the world. We should not be hiding behind locked doors. We should also not just simply enjoy one another's company within the church. That's such a temptation. That we would just get together with like-minded people. Let's build one another up. Yes, that's important, but that's not the goal. That's not the purpose that we've been given. We are to make disciples of all nations. We don't do that if we stay within our own little circle. We have been transformed by the gospel. If not for someone stepping out and preaching that gospel to us, we would not be within that circle. And now we've been given that commission to go out. Don't hide behind locked doors. You may be persecuted. You may be hated by the world. So was your Savior. So was Jesus. But he's given you the power of the Holy Spirit to endure that. We've been given that power and authority to attack evil, not hide from it. Jesus pursued the brokenhearted, he pursued the fearful, and then he pursued the skeptical. In verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 24, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, one of the twelve, missed that whole encounter that Jesus had 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 with the ten which is another source of internal evidence that the disciples didn't receive the Holy Spirit in that moment because one of the disciples who would go out and participate in this Christian movement was not there. But Thomas missed out on all this. Quick application, don't miss church. (laughs) To the disciples, Thomas was called the twin because literally he had a twin. To modern-day Christians, Thomas is often referred to as Doubting Thomas because of his skepticism around the resurrection of Christ. For those of you who used to watch Winnie the Pooh, Thomas is often portrayed as Eeyore, right? He's the one, Winnie the Pooh's, I'm having a good day, not me. I'm reminded of the SNL skit, um, Debbie Downer, played by Rachel Dratch. The classic where Horatio Sands ends up wiping his tears with pancakes or waffles or whatever. 
But if, you, if you've seen that skit, you know that everybody, they're at Disney World. It's the happiest place on earth. They're talking about going to eat steak, and she says, mad cow disease. I'm no longer able to have children. That's the way Thomas is portrayed. As Debbie Downer, as Eeyore. Earlier in this gospel, we saw that portrayal when Jesus told the disciples that they must go back to Bethany to visit his dead friend Lazarus just days after Jesus' people tried to stone him. If you look at John chapter eleven sixteen, oftentimes it's communicated this way. They, t- they go to him and say, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will not recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death. Jesus told him, hey, we've got to go. So Jesus tells the disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. All right, let's go. We're all going to die. But you know, after more study of Thomas's interactions with Jesus and the disciples, I'm not sure that's how he was. There are so many times in Scripture in the life of Jesus that he's willing to lay down his life. Whenever Jesus says, I'm going to go away, and he's like, well, where are you going? How are we going to find you if we don't go? I would rather die with you than follow you in death. One thing for sure is Thomas loved Jesus. When we see him here in John chapter 20, he's hurt because he has lost a man that he loves so dearly. So when the disciples tell him that Jesus is alive, he's reasonably skeptical. Maybe this is his mechanism to guard his heart in case this truth isn't for real. I've got to see it, guys. I can't go through this hurt again. I've got to see it. He says, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and can place my hand into the hole in his side, I will never believe. John records this for us so that we would fully appreciate what took place eight days later. Verse 26, eight days later, we find the disciples again, this time with Thomas, again locked up and hiding, and again Jesus does that freaky walk through the wall thing. And he shows up and he says, peace be with you guys. And then Jesus goes right after the skeptical Thomas. Revealing his divine knowledge of what Thomas would need to believe. He says, here Thomas, put your finger in the hole. Here's my hands. Here's my side. Reach out your hand. Put it in there. Is this what you need to believe? And in verse 28, Thomas's response to the revelation of the glory of Christ is at once again belief. That's why John wrote this gospel. So that when we see these signs, we would also believe. Thomas believed. He said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus asked him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed as well. He is not uh, depreciating Thomas's belief here. What he is saying is, blessed are those who will believe without seeing, because they will believe because of the Holy Spirit. They will be blessed. We, those of us who have believed without seeing the physical body of Jesus Christ, we are blessed. Blessed with the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus pursued the skeptical. He turned that skepticism into certainty and assurance. The response of Thomas is, My Lord and my God, I believe you. I love you. We know this because Thomas went to be a missionary, preaching the gospel throughout Greece and India, and eventually martyred for his faith. And how did Jesus do this? You know, he pursues the skeptic, and he communicates convincing truth. He just keeps preaching truth. And as ministers of reconciliation, as the church, we must continue to approach skepticism with the grace of Christ and with the authority of truth found in Scripture. Here, Jesus pursued the brokenhearted. He pursued the fearful. He he pursued the skeptical. And we get to this beautiful two verses in John's Gospel that many of us, you may not have memorized it completely, but you know where we're going when when we begin it. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life in His name. This was John's purpose for the whole gospel, to present Christ as clearly as He could, as the Son of God in the fullness of His glory, full of grace and truth. So that those who would read about the signs that he did would believe in him and find life in his name. He wanted to magnify Christ and portray him, his spiritual teacher, his dear friend, his brother, his Lord, his God. He wanted to portray him as accurately as possible for those who did not see him as he did. Sulphur Community Church, today we celebrate our fourth birthday. Four years ago, this church was planted with the purpose of making much of God in our neighborhoods and to the nations by reflecting Jesus Christ. Blake's kind of already led into this. That's not just something we say. There's a lot of meaning behind that and how that's accomplished. But that's why we exist. In essence, our purpose is the same as John's. We want to reflect Christ as accurately as possible. We want to magnify Him so that the people in our neighborhoods and in all nations would see Him and believe and have life in His name. And when that happens, God is glorified. He is made much of. So as we today celebrate our past, God has been so faithful. He has pursued the unlikeliest of people. We celebrate that today. 
And as we look forward to our future, let us strive daily to do what John was trying to accomplish when he wrote this gospel. I want to portray Jesus as accurately and clearly as possible. I want to present a picture to the world, not just to my brothers and sisters behind locked doors, but to the world of who he is. This is my Christ. I'm going to love you like Christ has loved me. I'm going to forgive you like Christ has forgiven me. I'm going to show you grace and mercy because you don't deserve it right now, but you know what? Neither did I, and Jesus extended that towards me. I'm going to seek restoration of all things, all people and places. I'm going to pursue reconciliation between broken relationships. I'm going to do whatever it costs to see that my Christ is made much of. Let, let, us be, let that be our goal that we strive towards. That is our purpose. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning thankful that You pursue us. Father, there are some in this room who may be brokenhearted. In Christ, you can turn that mourning into joy. Father, there are some when, when hearing this challenge, this task that's been given to the church to get beyond the walls of a building with the possibility of being persecuted and hated We may be fearful. Father, will you remind us of the power of the Holy Spirit that you've given us and the authority that we have in your your word that's been recorded for us to bring this message of hope to those who, who need to hear it. Father, I also ask that you would allow us to see the fruit from that. That you would grant us grace and mercy when we are obedient. Father, we also thank you for pursuing those who are skeptical. Those of us who have questions, thank you for truth. And we ask you to continue to sanctify your church in the truth of Scripture. Father, as we celebrate today, we thank you Gosh, our hearts are are overwhelming with joy and gratitude for just allowing us to be a part of what you're doing. It's as simple as that. You don't need us. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of what you're doing. As we look to the future, Father, as long as you would have us here, Let us strive to portray Christ, to reflect your Son as accurately as possible so that you're made much of in our neighborhoods and to the nations. 
Father, just like your son called out to Mary by name, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who has not trusted in your son, Jesus, Father, I ask you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to call them. Call them to yourself. Give them the ability to hear your voice. And let them follow your son, Jesus. We pray all these things for your glory, in your glory alone, in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.